Good morning, everybody. That song's so fitting for the weather, isn't it? (laughs) Doesn't that just bring some joy to this horrible, horrible weather? First of all, happy Mother's Day to all of the moms in this room. Let's give them a round of applause for everything that they do. Um, For... uh, You know, I mean, I think it goes without saying that there's nothing that we could do up here to show our appreciation. Uh, You get like one day a year. Um, The, you know, fireplace looking really nice for Mother's Day, the table outside with all the treats and the drinks and everything. That's all great, but there's nothing that we can do to fully show our appreciation for everything that you've done. Not even a holiday is enough. So you are very much loved and very much appreciated. Thank you to all of the moms in this room. but honestly, it, like, even though for most people this day is an awesome day of celebration for the joys of being a mother, uh, it is also a day that kind of carries some conflicting feelings for some people. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag for anybody that's ever lost a mother, um, for anyone who's ever, any mother that's ever lost a child, any woman that's ever struggled with infertility. Um, this day is just a reminder to them. So to those people, if you're in this room, I just want you to know that you are seen, you are loved, and you are very, very, very much appreciated by us as well. So this morning, we're going to continue our Joyride series. Uh, What do you guys want to talk about? Uh, I would like to pick up where Virgil left off, if that's okay. Uh, And unless I'm mistaken... Virgil uh, finished off chapter one of Philippians, and that left us right at Nelson Mandela. So that's where we're going to go. Now, he didn't mention him by name. Some people are confused. That's fine. Let me carry you along with me. Um, He didn't mention him by name, but if you grew up in church, you remember learning about Paul. You remember finding out about Paul. Uh, and what he does, he was the persecutor that became the persecuted. That was his reputation. Uh, And then when he became a Christian, when he saw Jesus, uh, God changed his name from Saul to Paul, and that's how we all remember it. But in reality, that never happened. We have this sort of collective amnesia when it comes to Paul, Uh, It's called the Mandela Effect, and that's why I threw up the picture of Nelson Mandela. The Mandela Effect. Um, It's when a large mass of people believe that an event occurred when it actually did not. It got its name from a woman uh, who was with a a crowd of people at some conference, and they were all discussing together the tragedy of the death of Nelson Mandela. And they remembered very, very clearly Um, his funeral and how he had died in a prison in the 80s and how his widow gave this very impassioned speech. They remembered it very, very well, very clearly, this whole crowd. Uh, But he never died. And none of that ever happened. He actually didn't even die until 2013. He was president after they remember this happening. He was president of South Africa. Uh, It's called the Mandela Effect. Some people aren't all that familiar with it. I got a few other examples. Everyone knows Darth Vader, yes? And we all remember the iconic line, uh, Luke, I am your father, except it was never spoken like that. The actual line is, no, I am your father. Sorry for spoiling it for anyone that has not seen the movie. I won't mention it for another 42 years. Um, Then there is the Berenstein Bears. We all grew up with that. My children... 
love the Berenstein Bears. We read those books. We watch those cartoons. Everyone's very familiar with them, except they're not called the Berenstein Bears. They're called the Berenstain Bears. Stain. It doesn't sound as good now for some reason. The Berenstain Bears. Let me ruin your childhood just one more time. There is the theme to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anyone remember the opening line? Yeah, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Except it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. That's how he's always sung it. Don't feel bad about that. Even Hollywood got that one wrong. They called it, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. So I know, I know this conversation is very triggering for some people. There's a movie that I swear existed that I saw as a child called Kazam that starred Sinbad in the 90s. And then it never happened. And people are like, oh, you're thinking of Shazam with Shaq. No, I'm not. I'm positive Sinbad was in a movie called Kazam. Um, but this is a Christian version of the Mandela effect. We think that for some reason, when Saul became a Christian, became a follower, he changed his name to Paul, when that's not actually how it happened. Um, here's how it actually works. Saul is a Hebrew name because he comes from a Jewish family. And guess what the Greek version of Saul is? Paul. Simple. Just like that. But the fact that it's Greek, that matters. Because Paul is uber-focused on converting the Greek. He writes his books in Greek. His letters are in Greek. Philippians is in Greek. Some people may not find that too important, but a foundational part of what Paul is doing is taking an idea that may be foreign to some, because it is, and making it palatable for them. He can't be Saul when he's preaching to the Greek. He has to be Paul. He has to be geared to the culture, but anchored to the rock of Jesus Christ. Another thing that Virgil told us that I want to remind you guys of is that Paul was in prison when this was written, okay? So it's important to catch up with the contextual setting. So I'll just add that uh, one of the major concerns in this letter that's going to come up in this chapter was to sort of subvert any feelings of pride that come from the high class, Okay, some members of the Roman Empire, they had some pride to struggle with. Not everyone in Roman territory had privileges, but Roman citizens certainly did. It's kind of like if you live in the town of Bel Air, you are closer to the fireworks, so you get to pay a lot more on your taxes. It's sort of like this for the Roman citizens, but they get a lot more privileges than non-Roman citizens do. And they tended to look down on those who did not have those privileges. So in my previous sermon, um, weeks and weeks ago, I hit on a few points that I'm going to be revisiting this week. And one of them was a question that I posed, and you might remember it. Is this worth it to you? Anyone remember that? A couple people? Cool. Is it worth it to you to follow Jesus, knowing what comes along with being a follower of Jesus? Every single one of us has to make that decision and this is how Virgil closed out his sermon last week, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Sorry about that. Don't know what's going on there. 
Um, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you, would know, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So he talks a lot about struggle there at the end. So I ask again, is this worth it to you? Thanks, Nick. I'll stick with this for now. Hopefully it doesn't get too much worse. Um, so you have to ask yourself, is it worth it for you? Verse 27 says to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Christ. He encourages the church and Philippi, and he encourages us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. So when people look at your life, how you treat others, how you treat your neighbor, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, will they look at, when they look at you, do they ask themselves if Jesus is worth it? There we go. Much better. It's very easy to forget the context of the letter of Philippians because it, uh, it isn't told in the letter itself. It's told in the book of Acts. And it's easy to forget that these people were very human like you and me, flawed like you and me, sometimes scared like you and me, seeking the wisdom and guidance of God just like you and I. Philippi had a lot to go through as a faith community. If you look at some of the people from Philippi that are mentioned in the book of Acts, um, you can see just right there their diversity. There's Lydia, who we're told is a very wealthy merchant or a wealthy businesswoman um, from uh, Theatira. Then we're told about a slave girl, a former fortune teller, who was freed when she started following Paul and Silas. And we're told about a Philippian jailer who actually wanted to commit suicide, but was saved. And those three now make up part of the church of Philippi. They're part of this Philippian community of believers. Those are just three examples, three examples of three different people who live their lives in completely different ways. And now they are the church. They are the church that is under a lot of external pressure from the Roman authorities in the area. Um, the Roman authority who did not like this new faith that was seeming to grow over Macedonia. Um, so these people, despite their differences, despite their pasts, they needed one another. They needed to depend on one another because they're a minority. They're a very small faction of people. We know that the Philippians have opponents that they're oppressed. Now we, as a church, we are not there. It is not anything like it was back then for us. But again, and we spoke about this the last time I was up here, sometimes it's hard to not feel pressed or hated for what you believed, to not feel judged, because what we believe is so counterculture. Paul tells us in chapter two of Philippians, is there any encouragement? And I'm gonna stop there. 
Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Encouragement. We know that there's encouragement in belonging to Christ, right? Anyone can be saved regardless of race, circumstances, attitude, income, whatever. Clearly you're encouraged knowing that, right? Is there any comfort from his love? Absolutely. We know about the love of God for us. There's no greater love than it. And it saves us from whatever situation we currently find ourselves in. Whether our situation was like Lydia's, constantly focused on career, or the slave girl, um, whether our situation was like her, constantly working to the appeasement of someone else, literally a slave to someone else, or a situation like the jailer, which was just indifference to duty, a slave to the grind, if you will. How do we live a life that is worthy of the gospel that we have been given, that we have been gifted? The first thing that Paul gives us is an example in unity. Let's keep reading that. Any fellowship together in the spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. So the first example that he gives us is unity. That doesn't mean that we don't think differently. Naturally, we think differently. That doesn't mean that we don't have our own opinions. What it does mean is that we have the same attitude. Live in unity. We are in this together. Love one another. Work together. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news. Some of you by now have heard me enough that you might think that I lean on this whole don't be a jerk thing entirely too much. I find a way to bring it up in every single sermon that I give up here. Um, And I'm happy to, this whole spiel. Do you know why? Because I keep reading it. Because every time I'm studying for one of these sermons, I keep seeing it. What does this tell us? How should a Christian be? It says tender, compassionate, loving, not someone that's hard to be around. What is the attitude that we as a body need to have? It goes on in verse three. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Do you have any idea how hard that is? What makes it especially hard is that being human, our humanity would demand almost the exact opposite. We always focus on self. We are a very, very selfish people, a very selfish culture. It's all throughout scripture and it's all throughout society today. It is our instinct. So much so, I hate to break this to you, but we are the sad footnote in human history that brought about a thing called the selfie. That is how much focused on ourselves we actually are. The selfie was such a crucial thing for us to have as a people. We demanded that phones be made with cameras on the front so that we could see ourselves when we take a picture of ourselves. You want to hear something shocking? (laughs) As I was looking up selfie stuff while I was writing this, um, people have died taking selfies. 
Whoever was shocked and said what? Yeah, that's where I was. So much so that it's actually a statistic now. From 2014 to now, the average is 259 deaths a year taking selfies. A year. Isn't that ridiculous? And if you're even wondering how that's possible, it's because of selfies like these. I wanted to try to contextualize this and compare it to a death that other people might think of. Um, and then that led to fears that people might have. And when I looked up fears that people might have, um, top three in every single list is fear of spiders. Um, which I completely understand because I grew up uh, seeing the 1990 movie Arachnophobia. Okay, eight legs, two fangs, and an attitude. It's terrifying. I'd like to think that that's where the fear of spiders originated, but I don't believe that it is. Do you know how many spider-related deaths there are per year? 11. <laughs> Selfies beat spiders. Selfies beat sharks. Shark-related deaths a year. Sorry, Jaws. It's easier to die taking a selfie than it is to be attacked by a shark. So we are a selfish people. That's well established. Other translations, they don't use the word selfish. Uh, it says, do nothing from rivalry. Rivalry. It's basically like saying, don't let yourself be caught thinking, I have to do better than she's doing. Or I have to do better than he's doing. I have to beat them. That's what it means to think from rivalry. And then the next word is conceit. So we know what rivalry is. Conceit would be, if by chance we don't beat that person, if by chance we lose to that person and they win, then we hate them for how well they've done and for how God has blessed them. That's conceit. That's selfishness that takes on the form of envy and spite. And then verse four is the kicker to end all of that. Don't look out for only your own interests but take an interest in others too. Paul tells us that our attitudes should be the same attitude as Jesus's attitude. What was his? This is actually how I closed my last sermon, verse two, uh, six through seven. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Christ showed us true humility by becoming a man, becoming like us, even though he was God. Jesus Christ in heaven, in glory, being praised by angels, never feeling pain, never knowing sorrow or hunger, humbles himself to become a human being and then ends up experiencing all of those things that I just listed. Now Jesus can relate to everything that we will ever go, go through because he has gone through it himself. Imagine being in the midst of glory in heaven and humbling yourself to be born in a stable, surrounded by animals, surrounded by filth, living with poor parents. Matthew eight twenty, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
He wasn't rich. He deserved to be rich. He deserved a lot more than riches. But he was the guy who relied on other people to take him in. So how do we be more like Christ? When we are willing to serve and we just make that a part of who we are. When serving just becomes a part of our identity. Think about how you serve. Do you serve just like when you're scheduled to? Is it like seasonal? I come free in the summer. You know, I'm not trying to come down on anybody. Don't, don't feel like I'm convicting you or anything like that. I could definitely do better with it. I actually have a friend uh, who has not served in like five or six years at his church. And when I asked him why, he was just like, oh, dude, I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm done with that part. I'm done with that. Like it's a Subway sub card or something. I got my holes punched. I got my free sub. That part's over. How do you be more like Christ? Let your personal preferences die. Verse seven, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He didn't just humble himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself by allowing mankind to unjustly crucify him. There's a staircase illustrated here that Jesus descended as an example for us from God to man, to servant, to death, to crucifixion, all on behalf of us. And Paul tells us this is the type of attitude that we should have. Verse nine through 11 says, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul has just reminded the Philippians and us of Jesus, who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and most importantly, how Jesus lived. Now we're going to move into a section of the chapter where Paul explains how salvation should impact how we live our daily lives. I mean, we, we're here every Sunday. We know what Jesus has done, right? But how, how does that impact how you're living? How does that impact how you walk through your daily life? It should be something that is lived out in a daily experience. Verse 12 says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now notice it doesn't say work for your salvation, right? That's not how it works. That's unbiblical. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. What the gospel says is you are right now as acceptable as you possibly could be. I look different than most of the pastors that have been up here. Josh being, I guess, an, ex an exception. But, uh, you know, when I, when I got my first tattoo, I had Christian friends that were not about it. I actually remember sitting in the midst of a conversation about whether or not I was going to go to hell because I had a tattoo. It's fun to sit there and figure out what your eternity is going to be. Um, and it's, it's not really all that encouraging. 
And the only thing that kind of brought me back to a good place was there was this ministry that existed called Hope for the Rejected. And I actually got a tattoo of it there. Um, there was a guy whose name was Loyal, which is an awesome name, um, who reached out to kids like me, like skater kids, punk rock kids, who did not go to church. Because when he saw them, he saw who Jesus tried to reach. That was the only, uh, that is the only reason that I am even here today was because someone saw what some other Christians might think of as unworthy. He saw that and said, that is who Jesus died for. You are as acceptable now as you could ever be. Paul reminds us that God is already working in us. He brings up this theme that he's brought about all throughout this letter. While we work out our faith and while God works within us, our attitudes matter and they impact how others see us. Therefore, they impact how others see the church. So here's what Paul wants us to think about. How can humble Christ-like self-sacrifice impact my daily decisions in every single aspect of my life? Think about your home life or your work life or your personal life. Does every single moment exhibit humble self-sacrifice to reflect the character of Jesus? Or is there some other goal that your life is oriented around? There probably is. So what do we do? This is my favorite thing about Paul. He doesn't just leave us in vagueness. Right here, Paul gives us some guidelines to follow. And the guideline is very simple. Verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing. There's not really a, a, a way to read into that. Well, what does he mean by complain? Complain about what? It's right there. This is why attitudes matter and why I bring it up so much. No one has ever come to know Jesus and give their life to him because they saw another person and they were another Christian and they were like, oh my gosh, you know what? That guy, he can complain. Maybe I should time to check out this whole Jesus thing. Other translations, instead of complain, they use the word grumble. Man, you see how that lady grumbles? I've got to go to church. The word that Paul uses here to not grumble, it's the same word used to describe God's people living in the wilderness in Exodus. People who complained, fought, and complained some more, and they made Moses their target, and they complained constantly to him. Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that he was pressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word, Jesus. He was led like a lamb to slaughter and he didn't open his mouth. Philippians 2, 15 through 18 says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. Paul says that having the attitude, having that attitude will keep us blameless. Verse 15 says, this is a world of crooked people. The Greek word for crooked is scoliosis. That's where we get scoliosis from. 
He's saying the culture is morally bent. Does that sound right to you? Paul calls the Philippians to avoid the path using a position of purity. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights. He closes out this chapter talking about what he's going to do for the church of Philippi. He says, I'm going to send you Timothy. Paul says he has no one else like Timothy, no one else who is so like-minded, no one who cares about the welfare of the church like he does. And we've read a lot about Timothy and we've talked a lot about Timothy the past couple of months here, but right after he talks about Timothy, he talks about a guy named Epaphroditus who doesn't get mentioned that much. And I'm going to focus on him right now. He says he's going to send Epaphroditus back to them. This is how we're going to close out this morning. Epaphroditus, he's actually the whole reason for the book of Philippians, for the letter that Paul wrote. Most people aren't even familiar with him. When the church of Philippi found out that Paul was imprisoned, they sent one of their own. His name was Epaphroditus to give resources or money to him. Philippians 25 says, Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So let me explain the geography real quick here. Epaphroditus is traveling to Rome and he gets sick along the way. Understandable. Dramamine didn't exist back then. We all get motion sickness from time to time. This is actually a very, very serious illness. He came close to death on his way there. Rome was 800 miles from Philippi. So Epaphroditus was doing about 700 of those miles by foot and about 100 by boat. A journey like this is something that a person will remember for all of their lives. And he wants to take it. He wants to take this long journey. He knows that he could get ill, that he could get sick, that he could get hurt. And he does it anyway because he wants to serve Paul and he wants to help Paul's ministry. On his journey, he gets sick, he almost dies. And rather than turn around and go home, he decides to continue on to get Paul these resources for the sake of the gospel advancing. He literally thought he was gonna be giving his life to bring some money to Paul. At no point did he second guess this move. It was just worth it to him. So he lived a life that was worthy of it. When you have a compelling vision of what you commit your life to, what it costs you doesn't matter, right? To some extent, we all know that. Anyone who's gone through college knows what it means to commit yourself to something and to pour all of yourself into that commitment. Um, anyone who has made those commitments to work or to finances or to family, we've been in similar positions where it doesn't matter what the cost is, it's well worth it when you think about the end goal. But then there is experiencing that for the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the mission that we were created for. And we all have different roles in that mission. Epaphroditus 
he had his role in that mission, and it was get this money to Paul. So what is your role? That role is for every believer in Jesus Christ. We all participate in the kingdom moving forward. Do you know what your role is? And are you giving yourself to it? Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for this message that Paul has given us. I ask that as we leave here, Lord, that you make that mission clear to us. For some of us, it might not be that clear. For some of us, we're still waiting on that call. For some of us, we're waiting on you, Lord. I just pray that you give us patience. I pray that you make it clear to everyone in this room, how do we serve you? How do we better serve the kingdom? Thank you for the sacrifice that your son made. It's in his name we pray. Amen.